Good morning, friends. Thank you so much for joining us online. We really miss seeing you in person, but thank you for joining us online this morning. I realize that there may be some people joining us who have never been with us in a worship service here in our building, and if that's the case, thank you. If you're just starting to watch our services, we really appreciate your being with us online. I want to take just a moment and uh, tell you how I think uh, you can find a little more about our church, and you can explore this on the website, but I want to take a moment and look at what we call our vision frame. As you're looking at our vision frame on your screen, think of it as a window frame through which you're looking into the future. And in the future, you see our Vision 2025. Our Vision 2025 is about a page and a half document. You can find it on our website if you'd like to read it, but it depicts what we hope our church will be like in the year 2025. Now, as you look around the vision frame, as you see it on your screen, on the right side, you'll see first our mission statement, building followers of Jesus who are sent to reach others. We believe as a church, we're called to so equip people to grow in their faith that just like Jesus did with his disciples, we'll be sent out into the world to share his love and his truth. As you look at the bottom of the frame, you see our discipleship pathway. Now, frankly, the pathway, which we consider a map for spiritual growth, is somewhat disrupted right now. We can worship together online, and we can grow in groups together online or small groups, but we can't be here on a Sunday morning to serve together in the parking lot or in the coffee bar or in Noah's Ark. Hopefully, that will uh, be restored to us soon, likewise going with a mission. On the left side of the frame, you see our seven values. These are values that we hope characterize our church now, but will increasingly in the future. And then the marks at the top of the screen are the way we believe uh, our church will look and be as those values become a reality as they are lived out. The Bible-centered value is certainly foundational to everything we do at River Oaks, and it is the Bible-centered value that's really given rise to our theme this year that we call One Story. That's our message uh, series for the entire year. We began in Genesis, we're going through the book of Revelation, and we're looking at the unity of the Bible and how every book of the Bible contributes to God's great one-story plan for His people. Today we're looking at the Old Testament book of Esther. Now, the book of Esther takes place about the time of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Esther is the last of the books of history in our Bibles. Next week, we'll begin the first of the books of poetry. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. So next week, we're going to focus on Job, a book that I think is especially relevant for this point in time as it talks about suffering and why good people go through suffering. But today we're at the book of Esther. Now, the book of Esther takes place during that time, as I mentioned, about the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Some of the Jews had returned from exile in Persia to the promised land, and they were working on building the temple. But many of the Jews remained in exile in Persia. And that is the setting for the book of Esther. It takes place in Persia, And it concerns uh, a young Jewish woman named Esther. 
I'd like to take a brief look at the key figures in the book, a little overview of the book, and then talk about the significance of the book of Esther to God's one-story plan into our lives today. I think there are really four key figures who are mentioned in the book of Esther. The first is King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, as he is also known. He was the Persian king at this time over a vast empire of well over a hundred different provinces. At the beginning of the book of Esther, uh, Queen Esther, uh, Queen Vashti is his wife, and she does something that really angers him, something that he considered very in, insubordinate, and so she's going to lose her position in the uh, early chapter uh, chapters of the book of Esther. Second key figure is a man named Haman. Haman is the king's number one advisor. You could think of him as the, the vice president, maybe. Haman is a man who is filled with pride and greed and self-importance. Haman is the personification of Satan, of the devil. And he makes it his goal to wipe out the Jews, to slaughter the Jews in the book of Esther. Third key person, key figure in the book of Esther is Mordecai. Mordecai is a Jew. He's no one particularly important in their society, no one famous. He's the relative who raises Esther after her parents die. And then there's Esther. She's the young Jewish woman who becomes queen in place of Vashti. Four of the key figures in the book. Now, there's another key figure in the book of Esther who is never mentioned by name. Do you know who that is? It's God. Do you know that God is nowhere mentioned in the book of Esther? Ten chapters. We don't find the word God. We don't find any reference to God. However, we see his invisible hand at work throughout the events of the book of Esther. Now, let's just take a quick, uh, broad look, overview of the book of Esther and see what's happening there. And then we'll talk about what it teaches us and why it's so important for our lives. Key events in the book of Esther. Well, as the book opens, King Ahasuerus decides to replace Queen Vashti for her insubordination as he sees it. And so Esther is chosen as queen. The king, the Bible says, loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Ashti. Now, the king did not know, apparently no one but her people knew, that Esther was Jewish. She did not make that fact known, but she became queen. Next key event is that Mordecai who's sitting outside the city gate with the servants of the king, he hears something. He learns about a plot to assassinate the king. We read this in Esther chapter 2. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthon and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king, in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now, file that thought away in your, in your mind for a moment. It'll become very important a little bit later in the events of the book of Esther. 
Now, as this is happening, Haman begins plotting to destroy the Jews. Why is he so angry toward the Jews? Why does he become Satan's puppet in his attempt to destroy the Jews? Well, we read this in Esther chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Now, this infuriated Haman. This Jew would not bow down to him, would not pay homage to him. And so Haman determines to try to obliterate the Jews from this whole broad empire. We read in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 3 that Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples and all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws. So that it's not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be so decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business that they may put it into the king's treasuries. Haman's saying, I'm even going to pay for it. I mentioned before, I'll say it again. I really think Haman is the personification of Satan in the book of Esther. And uh, he is a man who's just filled with arrogant pride. Next key event. Mordecai learns of what Haman is plotting. And he is grieved. His people are going to be wiped out. It's been decreed by the king. So Mordecai asks Esther to intervene. Remember, the king doesn't know that his new queen is a Jew yet. Mordecai goes to Esther, the young woman he has raised. He asks her to intervene with the king to save the Jews, and Esther agrees. And we uh, find these very famous words that were in the section Emily read earlier. I'll read them again. Esther is, uh, Mordecai is speaking to Esther, and he says, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. You see, Mordecai, he has godly wisdom. He knows that God has made a promise to bring the Messiah through the Jews. God's not going to let the Jews get obliterated. He says, if you keep silent, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Incredible statement. So Esther says, send this message back to Mordecai, gather all the Jews to be found, don't eat or drink, that is, declare a fast. I and my young women will do as you do. I'll go to the king. If I perish, I perish. We see her boldness. We see her courage. So Esther begins by preparing a banquet for the king and Haman. And she invites them to come. And the king says, what do you want, Esther? She says, if I found favor in the sight of the king, in Esther 5 and verse 8, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I'll prepare for them. And tomorrow I'll do as the king has said. Tomorrow I'll tell you the reason that I've called you to this banquet. Now, in the meantime, something happens. 
I mentioned that God is not mentioned anywhere in the book of Esther, but his invisible hand is orchestrating events throughout the book of Esther. And one of the ways he's orchestrating events is what happens next, when the king is reminded of what Mordecai did to save his life. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. So the king has now learned about what Mordecai did. He's been reminded he's never done anything for him. So the king begins to make plans for Mordecai to be honored. In fact, he puts Haman in charge of those plans. Shortly after this, Esther's second banquet takes place and Esther reveals Haman's plot and Haman will be hanged. As Esther brings the king and Esther into this banquet, um, Esther reveals the plot of Haman, the king gets furious, and ultimately Haman is put to death. And then the next key event is that Mordecai is promoted and the Jews are saved. Well, that's the story of the book of Esther. I want to consider now why the book is important and what it means to you and me. What does the book of Esther teach us? What does the book of Esther teach us about God, about his one-story plan? Why is it important? First key thing I think the book of Esther teaches us is this. God is always working, even when we don't see it. God is always working to fulfill his one-story plan, even when it may not seem that he is, even right now. As I mentioned, God's, God's name is not in the book of Esther, but as you follow the events of the book of Esther, you see him working throughout. Mordecai happens to be sitting at the gate when he hears of the plot to uh, assassinate the king. Esther, a Jew of all things, is chosen as queen. The king can't sleep one night, so the chronicles are brought to remind him what uh, Mordecai did just before the banquet where it's revealed that Haman wants to slaughter all the Jews. God's invisible hand is at work to bring about his great plan. God's great plan really began in the book of Genesis, ends in the book of Revelation. One of the most significant promises found in the book of Genesis is a promise God made to Abraham when God told Abraham that through his descendants, through his offspring, all the nations of the world would be blessed. In the New Testament, the apostle Paul calls that promise to Abraham the gospel, and he understands it as we can is a promise that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, ultimately would be born through Abraham's descendants, the Jews. That Messiah, of course, is Jesus. And in the words of the Apostle Paul, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So God's plan was to bring Jesus through the Jewish race. And in the book of Esther, we see God's hand preserving the Jews when this attempt was made to wipe them out, to obliterate them. 
Sometimes, in order to see God's invisible hand at work, we have to kind of take a step back and look at God's work over time. We don't often see God's hand at work if we look only at our immediate circumstances, but it's one of the great teachings of the book of Esther. God's invisible hand working to fulfill this one-story plan, even when it may not appear that he is. Second key thing to note in the book of Esther. While God is always working to fulfill his one-story plan, Satan is always working against God's plan. Now, there's no mention of Satan or the devil in the book of Esther. But likewise, his work is seen, and it's seen primarily through this man, Haman. Haman was Satan's puppet, Satan's instrument. And ever since the Garden of Eden... Satan has been at war with God's people and God's purposes. Opposing God's plan, Satan tried to prevent the coming of the Messiah, Jesus. I say this in part because some, some interesting uh, revelation that we have in the New Testament book of Revelation. And I want to look there just for a moment. Revelation, the last book of the Bible chapter 12, where we find some really interesting words that I think give us significant insight into the way that Satan works and into his purposes. Revelation chapter 12, and verse 1, we read, In a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one is, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now I'm going to skip ahead to verse 9 of the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 12, because it gives us further insight into who this dragon is. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent, that is the serpent who appeared in the uh, very beginning book of Genesis, Garden of Eden. That ancient servant who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him, his angels being, I think, his, his demons, the evil spirits. Now, one more verse in that chapter that gives a little bit of clarity about his works. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, as you may well know, there are certainly different interpretations about uh, many passages in the book of Revelation. Um, but I think certain things are clear in this passage, or certain things we can take away. And the first one is this. The dragon is Satan. We're told that very clearly. The dragon is the ancient serpent, the devil, Satan. And the dragon is trying to prevent 
the birth, the coming of this male child who is to rule all nations. And I believe that is a reference to Jesus. Think about the times when there were efforts to prevent the coming of the Messiah. I think about the book of Exodus, the very beginning of the book, when Pharaoh saw that the Hebrews, the Jews, were becoming strong and multiplying, and he decreed that every male child of the Jews would be taken and thrown into the Nile River. You know, we got to stop this. He didn't realize, I'm sure, that he was Satan's puppet. One of those children was found by Pharaoh's daughter and drawn out of the water. He was named Moses, which means drawn out. Think of the time when Jesus was born. Herod was threatened by the coming Messiah, so he made a decree that every male child, two years old and under, would be slaughtered. God told Joseph, Jesus' father, in a dream to take Mary and, and Jesus and flee to Egypt from Herod. And here in the book of Esther, we have Haman trying to wipe out the Jewish people. Well, we know Satan was not able to stop the birth of this male child who is to rule all nations, who I believe is Jesus. He failed to stop the coming of the Messiah. So what does he do now? Exactly what we read in verse 17 of Revelation 12. He went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And that, my friends, is a reference to you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and to me, those who are believers. Whether you know it or not, you live in the midst of a spiritual battle. It's an interesting thing to me that there's relatively little in the Old Testament about Satan, about the devil. We'll see a little bit next week when we go into the book of Job. But when we get to the New Testament, it's as if Jesus pulls back the veil. In the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark, we see Jesus just casting out demons, bringing his power, and saying to his disciples, Behold, I give to you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. We see the Apostle Paul saying, We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but principalities, powers, master rulers of the present darkness, spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. So take the whole armor of God, we see Peter saying, your adversary, the devil, walks around as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfastly in the faith. As a believer, you're in the midst of a spiritual battle, but you need not fear if you are in Christ. We need not fear the devil, but we certainly need not be ignorant of his schemes. C.S. Lewis, the Christian writer and philosopher, said something in his little book, The Screwtape Letter, said I think is particularly true and important. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, that is the human race, can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. I think that's probably the, 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 the big error in our nation, the United States of America today. I think most people just dismiss uh, the reality of Satan in his work. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in him. Certainly some people do that. As believers, we shouldn't be ignorant of his devices. We shouldn't live in fear of him, but we should be very much aware of his works, of his power. 
and to know that our strength only comes as we stand in Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. And if you have embraced the salvation Jesus provided in his coming, in his death on his cross and resurrection, you are, in the words of the Bible, in Christ. But you're also one of those offspring, one of those who hold to the testimony of Jesus against whom Satan wars. So be aware. Take the whole armor of God. Stand strong in him. The book of Esther teaches us, even though God is not mentioned, that God is always working to fulfill his one-story plan. Also teaches us, without mentioning Satan, that Satan's always working against God's plan. And thirdly, this important truth, that God allows people of faith to fulfill key roles in his plan. Throughout biblical history, God chose to use people of faith to play a part in preserving the Jews, preserving life on earth like he did through Noah, people who believed so that one day the Messiah would come. In the book of Esther, one of the key people God used was Mordecai. Mordecai is so significant in the book of Esther that really we could say the book could have been named the book of Mordecai, but God chose to call it the book of Esther. We read in Esther 3 and verse 2 that when others came out, uh, when, when Haman came out, others were uh, bowing down, essentially worshiping Haman. Mordecai absolutely wouldn't do it. He did not bow down or pay homage. Mordecai was pure in his devotion to the one true and living God. He was uncompromising. He was pure in his worship. He was devoted to the one true God. And really, it was Mordecai who would go to Esther and call her to intervene. So Mordecai is the first key person of faith. Esther is the other. And again, we read in Esther chapter 4, Mordecai goes to her and says, hey, if you keep silent, relief and deliverance is going to rise from somewhere for the Jews. But who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. That's an incredible statement. He's saying, Esther, think about this. Don't you think God has placed you where he's placed you for a reason, for a purpose? So Esther then responds in faith. She says, all right, call all the Jews to fast. Pray for us. I'll go, and if I perish, I perish. This young woman has courage, she has faith, she has commitment to God and his purpose, and each one played a key role in preserving the Jews through whom ultimately God would bring the Messiah, Jesus, to bring about our redemption in his one-story plan. What about us right now, 2020, where we find ourselves today? Well, the Messiah has come. Jesus has come. He has provided, in the words of the Apostle Paul, redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of his sins. But God's one-story plan is not complete. Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. Friends, there are people in, in our extended families, in our network of friends and neighbors, people all around us who don't really understand the gospel yet. Some who may have never really heard it clearly presented. And certainly there are countless nations of the world who have no scripture in their language or the message of the gospel nearby. God's plan's not yet complete. 
and we have roles to play. So as we draw to a close this morning, there are two questions I'd like to raise by way of application. The first is this. Let's ask ourselves this question. Why has God placed me on earth for such a time as this? Why do I live now? Why did God appoint me to live at this time in history? Why do you live in 2020 and not 500 B.C. or 500 A.D.? Why has God chosen you to live in this time where you live? Why has God placed you where he has for such a time as this? And secondly, how's he calling me to participate in his one-story plan? I'm sure there's some of you thinking, wow, there are things I could do, but I just can't get out and do them now. There's one thing we can all do, and that is to, to pray. Never dismiss the great importance of prayer in your participation in God's one-story plan. I want to urge you in this season in which we find ourselves to take this attitude. We're not just going to make it through. We're not just going to go through it. We are going to grow through it. And I want to ask you to join me. My wife and I have been doing this, and, and uh, we missed a few days every now and then we forget. But most days we're doing this, and I encourage you to do this too, to spend at least five minutes praying with at least one other person for a greater outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon our lives, upon our church, upon our community, upon our nation, so that when we do come back together corporately in worship, we will see a difference we will sense the presence and the power of God in a greater way than we have before. That there will be countless people coming to faith in Jesus during this time just because they're watching services like this one online. Maybe friends that you have reached out to, friends you've contacted. So I ask you to join me in uh, making this commitment to spend that daily time in prayer. I'd like to pray now uh, before we go back into a few minutes of worship through singing. Would you join me? Father, we come now in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that you have ordained that we live in such a time as this. Would you encourage each and every one listening today, Father, regarding our own role, our own significance in your plan? Father, I pray for those who feel useless and discouraged and hopeless. Would you please rekindle vision, hope, renew faith? Would you remind every person who has embraced the salvation of Jesus that you have chosen and appointed them, that they are, in the words of Scripture, your workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which you prepared in advance for us to do. Renew the hope of your people, Lord. And for those who may not yet be yours, would you work in them a deep conviction of need and sin and awareness that Jesus meets that need when we call upon his name for our salvation. And we pray in his great name this day. Amen.